Welcome to Fret Nods with me, Rosie Bennett. Fret Nod is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the heroes and the champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, the inventor of the original nylon string for guitar, and my string of choice, and a company full of my favourite guitar people in the guitar world. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. Listeners of Fretknot get 50% off of Augustine Strings using the code FRETKNOT50 at augustinestrings.com in the States or at ivamorantz.co.uk in the UK. I'll put those links in the description box in case I've said them completely wrong and I'll put that code there too, FRETNOT50, without spaces, all in capital letters. Just enter it at the checkout. In today's episode, I talk to Derek Gripper, a long-time hero of mine. You may know him as the guitarist who plays core music arrangements, to be heard in fantastic form on NPR's tiny desk platform, and KEXP to name but a few. And if you don't, you should definitely check it out, I don't know what you've been doing. Born in South Africa, he began his music education as a classical violinist, dabbling in a little bit of viola and piano, and moving towards guitar in his teens. His search for what might be out there led him to India in 1997, where he learned rudiments of the Carnatic percussion language, but eventually it brought him back to the Western Cape, where he recorded Sartifle, the first album of Derek's work that I ever heard and fell in love with, which he recorded with his close friend and collaborator, the late Alex van Heerden. He says, I spent the years just before and after Alex's death exploring the implications of what we had created together trying to bring them onto solo guitar. I first came into contact with Derek when he commented on a post of mine on Instagram where I was discussing the relationship between hard work and talent and trying to work out which one is the most important. Derek wrote, definitely neither. Talent is a myth propagated by teachers who rely on the students who get things quickly because they don't know how to teach. Hard work is a religious construct to keep people toiling for the good of the community. Art is the work of the individual to remind humanity that interest is the strongest force we have at our disposal. Enjoy. Derek Gripper, thank you for coming on. What is a lesson you've learned that has been the most meaningful to you? Ooh, thanks, Rosie. Thanks for having me. The lesson that's most meaningful for me, that's a difficult question i mean there's so many things and i feel they change all the time so i don't know if there's been a single lesson i can say there's things that have been inspiring or things that have been freeing there's various philosophies that i quite enjoy that speak about you know how things grow from the inside as opposed to are constructed from the outside and i Mm -hmm. think that perspective has been very useful to to me just something as simple as remembering a telephone number like how do you actually remember a telephone number and what happens when the telephone number pops into your mind okay that's a silly example because no one remembers telephone numbers anymore but i just have a memory of going oh what is it and you sort of you you know you tighten yourself up and you look up to the ceiling or, or whatever it is someone's name i'm trying to remember somebody's name 
you know, what is, where does that thought come from? And the fact that actually you can just sit there looking vacantly moronic and still the name will pop into your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, it comes from the, comes from the inside and music is, is somewhat the same if you, you know, you can think all these clever ideas and think, oh, if I did this, that would be really interesting or what happens. And it never is. I think we're probably a little more, or at least we exist within a world that's very constructed around trying to make sense out of what we do, perhaps through an insecurity of the fact that what we do is very temporary and never making, or never being at ease with that. I know it's unfortunate because you can't really control things, you know, like that's, that's a futile project. So, you know, you're trying to get your nails just right so that you can get the right sound and the, the angle of the guitar is right and the, this is right. And then you work out the phrasing and where do you want to go loud and where do you want to go soft? And you spend all this time doing these things. And, you know, when you focus on the big toe, you miss the whole body, you know, and you know, you, you focus on trying to, you know, relax your foot, you, you lose the neck or, you know, <laughs> you, yeah, you focus on the periphery, you lose the center. And yeah, so it, it doesn't really work. And, and then what's, what's the end result of that is you succeed, you know, mm. wouldn't that be disastrous if you actually succeeded in what you set out to do? In other words, getting exactly the right tone and, and the phrasing exactly as you wanted to. And then what? Then you do that for 30 concerts, 40 concerts, and you would be dead bored by the end of it, you know, and, and then you'd have to th find some other thing that makes it a concert interesting, you know, as opposed to the, just the music itself and the, the question, what's going to happen today? You know, I find that's a very useful question to ask, you know, oh, what's my guitar going to sound like today? You know, oh, and what's it going to choose to play today? What's, what's going to happen? You know, that's so much more fun. Mm -hmm. I find it very interesting that you started playing classical violin and that you've played viola and piano and you came to classical guitar. Mm, I did a master's in classical music. I spent nine years at university. Nine, nine years. years. Nine yes. years is a long time. It is. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. But I wondered if you found it an uneasy time at all. I've heard you say a lot in interviews that the music didn't really seem all that interesting to you you know the problem with 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 these things is that we get caught up in the discourse of the of the guitar let's say of classical guitar and when you're caught up in that discourse be it uh you know the difficulties the the things that you're trying to achieve whatever it is then a lot a lot of things can be wonderful can seem just absolutely marvelous and you can just be blown away by something a piece or something you've achieved or another player or whatever mm -hmm. If you're outside of that discourse, it's actually much less interesting. And suddenly you're not listening to those things anymore. You're actually listening to the music. And often then is when you realize that the music is not very interesting. And that's sort of what happened to me is I kind of woke up and went like, wait a second, I don't actually listen to this music. You know, mm. like, what is this? I would, what? I wouldn't listen to this. If you told me this was on a keyboard or something, I'd be like dead bored. You know, this, the rhythm's terrible and... There's no interesting you know, dynamics going on here. And like, what is this? This is not, there's no groove, you know, but understanding the difficulty of it and understanding, you know, so it's, it's more like a, you, 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 you listen to it as a sport almost, 
goodness gracious me, listen to that clean tone and the way that he shifts from there to there and the clarity of those things, you know, and I think we're a little bit caught up in that, you mm. know. And, and this happens in all musics, uh, you know, I, I think it's happened in Indian classical music as well, where, you know, these like very intellectual disciplines that become competitive within themselves and, you know, more and more complex, more and more fast, in the case of classical guitar, more and more clean, uh, more and more, more and more sort of classical, you know, whatever that, mm -hmm. this image that we have of classical music and, you know, probably trying to copy the piano. Um, we get caught up in that and we lose the audience and it becomes something that it's guitarists playing to guitarists and we've heard this a million times in you know in interviews you know where's the classical guitar audience they've left because they're <laughs> bored <laughs> <laughs> yeah and probably because they don't like us very much because we're all quite judgmental and mean it could be that too yeah but it's just deeply uninteresting unfortunately there's just a lot of deeply uninteresting playing going on and it's because your reason for playing is not to connect, you know, to the moment and to the audience and to the mm -hmm. instrument and to the beauty of sound and possibility. It's it's to to make sure that you get this piece right and this, you know, it becomes like a like a gymnastic exercise and that doesn't touch anybody, you know. Yeah, I think there's some kind of cognitive dissonance happening in the classical guitar world or actually in the general wider classical music world there's a feeling of how to describe it like sort of religious sacrifice to something in which you sort of feel that you're doing a duty by playing this music you wrote something mm. on a post of mine that made me think very hard mm, i asked people what do you think is the most important talent oh, yeah. versus hard work and i remember you saying definitely neither of them and uh, you said something about hard work that made so much sense to me. It was like hard work is this kind of religious concept that keeps people struggling for the common good. And I think that that is something that is really prevalent in the classical music world, because I think that classical musicians often feel hard done by. And I think it's because of the fact that you feel like you sacrifice so much, not just in time, but in some kind of enjoyment of it as well, because so much of what you're searching for is like to please this higher power that you are sort of taught exists because that makes it easier to to keep you in it. Um, well, it's virtue, isn't it? We want to feel virtuous. Virtue. Oh, I struggled. I played so hard today. My fingers are bleeding. Oh, there's a one. There's millions of stories in it. I was reading a little uh, biography on Vilayat Khan, the mm -hmm. Indian uh, sitar player, and. You know, he describes playing and his fingers bleeding and well, not him, but the person in the book, you know, this this idea that this, you know, this physical sacrifice is is what is going to create, you know, something, something marvelous. I'm reminded of the story. I forget the names, but there's this it's from the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Zen tradition. And, you know, this is this hermit in the wherever out in the forest or wherever. And, the, you know, he's very holy and the. The, the birds come to him and bring him flowers even because that's how holy he is, you know. And then somebody comes along to visit him, another aspirant Zen master or whatever. And they're sitting together and there's a big roar in the forest of a lion or whatever there is in the forests there. And um, the new guy who's just arrived jumps and he says, ah, oh, it's still with you, is it? You know, fear or... And so he's been called out. You know, and a few days later, the, the very holy master is 
walking along and, and this, this guy takes the stone where he usually sits and he writes Buddha on it. And he goes along and he sees how oh, Buddha's written on the stone. As he sits down, he sees this and he hesitates because now he doesn't want to sit on a stone that says Buddha. And the guy says to him, ah, it's still with you, is it? And he has this moment of realization where he drops that last little bit of virtuous, you know, uh, whatever. And, and that's, that's his final breakthrough point. And the, the birds stop bringing him flowers because now he's not this holy man anymore. He's, a, you know, he's actually an ordinary, uh, truly realized uh, kind of guy, <laughs> whatever he is. <laughs> I don't know if that, if that makes any sense, but yeah, virtue, we, we love it. You know, oh, I practiced so hard and that must be good because we don't know what is good. And I suppose, doesn't it come down to, uh, doesn't it come down to the fact that we, we think that our value is, and then fill in the dots, you know, my value is the eight hours a day I practiced, or my value is the expensive guitar that I play, or my value is the fact that I spent X amount of years at university because we would never say, ah, oh, my value is my unique interests and take on music you know no one wants to say that mm -hmm. you know we're taught that that's not it it's the hard work that you put in and the expensive microphone and all those things mm -hmm. and sadly those things aren't that interesting to most audiences really you know they don't actually care what kind of guitar you have or how long you practiced for they're there for you boring boring old you you know and that's all you've actually got to give them is boring old you and you can hide behind all the you know other things but you know there's so many guitarists out there now that can do all the fancy stuff and have all the fancy stuff and the fast cars and the clothes and the whatever it is <laughs> you know you've only actually got you it's all people are interested in i'm curious because well, i heard you say in an interview that you spent a long time searching for gurus um, mm. that you were searching for this all-knowing person and that you couldn't find it in many of the places, oh. the common places where you thought you might. Um. I know, it's so sad, you know. First of all, the idea of, of the, I mean, I don't know if you ever read The Glass Bead Game or something, you know, the idea of this, of sort of going to the master. You know, that's yeah, that's a Herman Hesse book. Or, you know, that idea of, you know, going to it. That also happens in Narcissus and Goldman when he goes and studies with the great um, yes. carver, wood carver. You know, that idea of going to, to a master sitting at the feet of the master mm. and I looked for that first in classical guitar um, you know the teacher of course in the process of looking for the perfect teacher you ignore the teachers that are right in front of you you know because you're looking for this teacher who's gonna you're gonna trust 100% and of course I never trusted anybody <laughs> I was always <laughs> like no nah, you're talking rubbish that's not true or like oh that's really great but oh, I don't know about this you know, so having that wholehearted, you know, trust, well, it's just something that didn't come, didn't come so easily to me, which is probably why I never found. And then I realized musicians were fallible and, you know, the, the path of music, you know, was sort of, you know, I was seeing people who were, were just professionals, you know, they weren't seeing music as a spiritual path or, or something, whatever that was supposed to mean. And then I thought yoga. You know, so I, I, I ended up going to India again to look for, to see what was up in that and spent a bit of time there and realized it was exactly the same, you know, professionalism and, mm. you know, people, you know, and status and who does this and who did that. Um, 
So in the end, I just had to kind of cobble everything together. I'm addicted to epiphany. I love it. I love that, that moment when you go, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, my goodness. You know, I get an immense sort of uh, kick out of that. And it's problematic uh, because it obscures what I'm already doing. You know, so I have this moment where I like it's a watershed moment. I, I suppose you could think of it like that. I'm addicted to watershed moments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I could be at a concert and I end up doing a completely improvised concert. And I th and I finish the concert and I'm just completely just elated. And I think, oh, my gosh, I've finally done it. I can do an entirely improvised concert. I'm never playing a concert of set music again. I'm always going to improvise. This is how it's always going to be. Oh, this is so marvelous. And then I get to the next concert. And of course, that's not what you want to do. And you can't do it and it falls flat. And and it's, you know, because you've mm -hmm. taken this memory and this concept from concert number one and you try to implant it. To, to concert number two. Uh, so that's a, a problem, a problem uh, for me is, that, is that, that thing. And it lasts less and less, you know, I'm quicker and quicker to sort of return to being empty headed about it, you know. Oh, I'm going to a concert, you know, I'm not going to improvise or I'm not going to whatever, you know, I probably have a little repertoire of concepts in my head of, of you know, where I go to, oh, I'm going to be an improvising guitarist. Oh, no, I'm going to play these very pristine little pieces, just this piece and then this piece, almost like beautiful ink drawings or something, you know, like these. And, you know, getting rid of that and just arriving at the concert and seeing, you know, what, what's going to happen. But I'm, I'm still always searching for the next epiphany. And when was the first epiphany? Oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I had an I had an epiphany in India about um, in, in, when I was 19. Uh, I was I took my viola and I was playing very a lot of viol, violin viola. Uh, I was studying classical guitar, but my real creative energy was going into into the viola. And I went to study Indian classical violin. I gave myself two months to take some lessons. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> And then I, I realized that, okay, I need like two lifetimes and, and they're actually doing it pretty, they've got it down, like they know what they're doing. So I thought, okay, wait a second, maybe I need to go back to the guitar because I actually think the Indians have sorted the violin, they've done it. Like it's nothing that they, there's nothing that I would like to do to the violin that they can't do already, mm -hmm. done. So I went back to my guitar and I got very excited about the idea of being a guitarist and playing a guitar and I was traveling around and I didn't have a guitar, but I was thinking about it, about what I could do on the guitar. Um, you know, how I could do long form improvisations and, you know, change the tuning of the guitar and do all this, all this thing. And it was only a, a very recently, you know, 20 odd years later that I, um, that I thought back and I thought, oh, okay, I had that big epiphany and I suppose there's some things in that, in that moment that I'm actually doing now without having realized it, you know, I kind of gave up on the dream because it was too difficult and it didn't mm. work out or I got distracted, you know, because then I got pulled into classical guitar and got very inspired by Paul Galbraith, especially, and started on the eight string guitar and, you know, and, and went into that, you know, went into that sort of insecurity mode of like, I've got to make myself brilliant and I've got to be able to do this and this and that and, you know, it's not about guitar it's about music you know mm -hmm. and 
and all this. Uh, so then the next epiphany was uh, realizing that it was about guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was about guitar, which, you know, I would have just laughed at you. You know, the idea that, you know, how the way that Segovia would change the timbre and go to the back of the bridge, I just thought that was so kitsch. You know, awful. Why would you do that? That's got nothing to do with the music, you know, to hear the melody there and then there. Oh, it's awful, you know. It's like the orchestration in Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. You know, it's a nice effect, but it's that's not my vibe. I'm much more about austerity and the music. Um, and then the next epiphany was realizing, wow, the, you know, the guitar is, is that's the, it's just amazing. The sounds of the instrument, it's got nothing to do with the music. Mm-hmm. You know, like like old Segovia said, you know, the, the song of the guitar is a song, <laughs> and all that. And my teacher at the time um, used to say that to me. He used to say, "Evoke the soul of the guitar," and I'd say, "Rubbish, rubbish." <laughs> but years later, I, I I realized what he was what he was trying to say. It sounds very inspiring. I guess that thought of like having come back and been so inspired and found the guitar and that's it and then gonna take all of these things that you have had enlightened moments about and put them together into into something that we know as listeners of you today which is everything that you do now (laughs) um i guess that's like the rocky montage but what was the what was the day-to-day experience of that like you know, there were moments like I remember driving on the autobahn in Germany and I was on my way to a concert and I was being driven by someone and we were listening to Egberto Gismonti mm-hmm. um, playing with Charlie Hayden. And I was just like, oh, my God, listen to this music. You know, and I was on my way to play a classical guitar recital. And I thought, forget it. What am I doing? I'm in Germany and I'm going to go and play Bach to them. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, why? And I arrived and I just did what I wanted. And that was a wonderful moment, you know, just, and then, you know, I remember someone coming up after me and said, you know, if I played like that, my teacher would kill me, but I loved it. <laughs> so, so there's always, you know, those moments of getting closer, uh, you know, to, to whatever yourself is, you know, which means, you know, what you do naturally on the guitar and just not, not hating that, you know, not having the self-loathing that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to write some music on the guitar and I'm going to, start judging myself and think oh that's so cheesy or that's so this or oh if i write music like that it means that i'm this Mm -hmm. or if i play this you know i've given up or and just really you know unleashing that that creative force you know that comes out where you are just yourself which means that and what does that mean you're yourself it means that you're not arguing with yourself all the Mm -hmm. time you're letting this flow come out and you're letting things happen and you're not getting in the way you're not arguing you're not censoring. You're not mm-hmm. saying, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Hey, uh, uh, uh. No, 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 not that. You must do this now. You know? Um, and I suppose that's what I've been evolving over the years is, is this, uh, this discipline of non-argumentative guitar playing, you know, so that I can really get on stage with an empty mind. In other words, em- not empty as in blank, but empty in terms of this is what I'm going to do. I've got a plan, you mm-hmm. know? So I worked, I worked slowly in it. I used, to, I used to have a plan. I would say, okay, I'm going to play these pieces in this order because that's going to be really great. And then I realized that it just didn't work. And so I would start changing the, the program halfway through the concert um, because it just felt wrong. You know, this is not, ah, no, this is not going to work now. I can't. And if I forced myself to do what I decided 
the day before. I could feel it was wrong. Uh, so I got to the point where I would only decide what the first piece was going to be. So mm-hmm. I'd sit backstage and I'd think, okay, that's the first piece. And then I'd go on. And then after that, I would let it happen. And then eventually I got to the point where I thought, okay, I can choose the tuning and maybe the introduction, you know, and then, and slowly nothing, you know, and eventually you start to really trust yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't fake it. And you're not backstage going, oh, what should I play first? You know, because in the beginning, you're sort of lying to yourself a bit because you are actually choosing. Eventually, you just, it's the last thing you're thinking about. You're not thinking about that anymore at all. And you arrive on stage and you can really meet the audience. Ah, hello, there you are, you know. And then you can listen to the hall and then you can play a note and you can tune and you can start. And then this whole thing goes. And then my job is just to not argue. So, ah, this piece suggests or, or this thing or this line or this note and not being a sense and going, oh, I shouldn't do that. That'll be boring. Or, oh, I've played that too many times. Or, oh, no, if I play that, the audience will be very bored because I'm sure I've just played in New York six months ago and I played this piece and there's that. Oh, I can see that person in the audience that was there last time and they're going to think that I haven't learned a new piece in six months and all that ridiculous dialogue that goes on. Yeah. You know, just leaving it alone and not arguing. Where do you think that dialogue comes from? Do you think it's something natural or do you think it's something that we learn? No, it's learned. Yeah, yeah, it's learned. It's criticism. It's it's learned. It's it's all those, you know, it's well, you know, we're inspired by somebody and then we put them up as an authority. And say, "Ah, come on, that was so good. Why didn't you just stick with the inspiration?" You know, they didn't need to be an authority. They needed to be an inspiration. But unfortunately, they become they become an authority. And as soon as they're an authority, then you you root your your listening through them. Ooh, what would so and so think about this? You mm-hmm. know, and and then the audience obviously becomes that as well. And of course, you have absolutely no idea what anybody else is going to think, how they're going to receive what you're doing. You just don't know. Like we do not know what anybody else is thinking. And so you can either sit there fantasizing about what they're thinking, or you can just drop it completely and have a good time. And I, I remember having a real like, moment with this. I, there was a lecturer at my university who was very important to me, and uh, not, not in guitar, but in the greater musical world, and really gave me the sense that you know, the guitar's music was very small. And there was this world of large ideas, messian, and wah, you know. Mm-hmm. And I felt like insecure, you know, because the mm-hmm. guitar is just a silly little instrument, you know. If you play the pieces on the piano, they just sound so banal and ridiculous. You play Tarragon on the piano, it's like, really? What are you talking about, you know? So, and so for years, I had this, this person, you know, in the back of my mind telling me when I was doing something that was a lollipop and when I was doing something that was truly great. And eventually I got over that. And I stopped thinking about what he thought in adverted commas. Mm -hmm. And then one day he wrote to me and he said that One Night on Earth, my album of Cora music, which I would have considered was just the most banal rubbish to him in that thing. It was his favorite album and he listened to it all the time. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. And there I tortured myself for years 
you know, and then I do the simplest thing possible, and this guy comes along and says, "Oh, this is just marvelous," you know. So you just really don't know, and that's really freeing, isn't it? On, on the other hand, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's the void again. No, um, yeah, I think that's probably quite freeing. I think classical music education probably has a lot of structures left over from a time that where we operated very differently. Um, where music was something else. Well, I have a theory about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, coming from a colonial, an ex, an ex colony, um, but I think it worked in class as well, you know. And 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 it's just a an idea. Um, but I used, to, I used to tell this joke in concerts that you know Europe. At some point, they discovered the rest of the world, and they discovered that the rest of the world also played music. And this was hugely traumatic for them because, you know, up until then you could say, oh, but these are the, you know, the lesser, lesser beings. But now these lesser beings are also playing music. So you have to differentiate somehow. Similarly, with us walking down, you know, you're going to the concert hall, you have to differentiate from the guy who's playing Eagles covers in the pub down the road. You know, you have to know that what you're doing is different. And unfortunately, everything you do to assert that difference is going to be at the expense of your physical, mental freedom. You're going to be imposing that idea on yourself, you know. And I think that happened, um, you know, in Europe through the colonial experience in many, many realms. But of course, very importantly, in music, you know, it got stiffer and stiffer and stiffer. The more you had to assert that this was something, you know, transcendent and mm -hmm wonderful and amazing and the, the clothes got stiffer the way of performance you know everything got stiffer and then you go you, you arrive in west africa and people are sitting under a tree playing music and then you can be relaxed you can go yes well sweet they're playing folk music you know but we are doing really serious music and unfortunately that seriousness is at a huge expense you know that you lose everything you know and groove is the first thing to go <laughs> <laughs> you know that yeah. beautiful that beautiful human thing you mm. know uh you know where there's a little bit of a something a little bit of a swing a little bit of a and and you hear it absolutely in the afrikaans music of, of south africa which split on racial grounds and you hear how the one which tried to be european just becomes stiffer and stiffer and more what what alex van heerden one of my collaborators the late alex van heerden used to say just was more sexually repressed. <laughs> the other side, this roundness and this, this still ability to express the body, and it's got nothing to do with genetic makeup or anything like that. It's got to do with what are you doing when you play? What are you trying to assert? And if you're trying to assert your superiority, you're going to you're going to put you're going to put up you know all these ideas onto yourself, which brings us to you know the process of of how do we deprogram this you know and i don't think it's unique to to a classical education i think it's i think it's human i think we're all doing this all the time you know we're all pretending we're all doing things that we don't want to do and posturing in certain ways you know be it how you know you know you see all your friends and you start smiling and then after three hours you finally walk out of the room and your your mouth hurts because you've been just smiling because that's your mask that you put on, you know, or, or whatever it is. So, so what I do is I try and work out what it is that I'm, what it is that I'm trying to do. And actually, the 
the best way to do that is actually to judge yourself. Because if you judge yourself, then you know what it is that you're trying to do immediately. So let's say I pick up my guitar and I start to play. And let's say I have the thought, oh, the sound is very thin. That's a judgment. So what's actually happening inside my very quick mind, you know, we have these quick minds and they're layering things one on top of the other. As soon as you have a thought, even subconsciously, because most of the time you're not even conscious that you're thinking that, you're going to try and fix it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to try and fix it by doing something. In the same way that we scrunched up our eyes when we were trying to remember the number or the name, you know, mm-hmm. we want to we show ourselves or the people around us that we are actually making an effort. Like when our teacher says, concentrate, and then you stop blinking and you look and you stop moving yourself because now you're concentrating. Mm-hmm. Whereas that isn't concentration at all. That's just not blinking you know they're two completely separate things and we do that all the time so now you're thinking i need to make a loud sound so your body does exactly that thing it says oh i'm doing that i'm doing that and in the process of doing that the big muscles the outside sheath of muscles fix in some way and they start doing something so you actually lose physical mobility you know and you clamp down and then you add the next thing oh i'm not playing in time so, the, so immediately you come to your own, you come to your own uh, sort of rescue and you say, I need to play in time. And then you do whatever it is that you think is playing in time. And so it goes and you do more and more and more. And before you know it, you're stiff and tight and sore and, and it's all a mess. But when you, when you judge yourself in this way, you actually have a goldmine of information. Because now you know, ah, I'm thinking I need to play loud. I'm thinking I need to play in time and I'm thinking whatever the other one was. I need to impress that person in the front row who's, uh, you know, a famous guitar player. As soon as you say to yourself, I don't need to make a big sound, your body stops trying to do that and you can feel this thing fall away. I don't need to play in time. Ah, that falls away too. That fake scrunching up the eyes, whatever it was inside that you were doing, falls away. I don't need to impress that person in the front where also falls away, gone. Suddenly you have a body that can move a little bit more. And of course, a body that can move more is going to play better. It's going to make a better sound. It's going to play more in time. It's going to be more perceptive. It's going to be able to hear more. All the good things are going to happen. So it's always this counterintuitive thing where Mm. the things that you think you consciously need to do, you actually have to remind yourself not to do because the real playing doesn't happen with that little brain in the front that's you know, walking around, you know, with a stick telling you what to do all the time. And, and that's, the, that's the mind that's controlling us 90% of the time through our culture and through, you know, just being human. And, and it's quite remarkable when that mind steps back more and more and more and suddenly you realize you have these hands and they're just moving and they're just doing things all by themselves. It's remarkable. And you think, my God, how, you know, like when you remember a piece, you know, muscle memory. I mean, classical musicians are terrified of muscle memory. You know, oh, you can't learn that with muscle memory because what happens in a concert if you forget, you know? And we spend 99% of our time setting that up, you know, that thing. Whereas muscle memory is is the intelligence of the body, it lasts Mm. into dementia, you know? (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess that's, again, another kind of masked insecurity because they think, not trusting muscle memory specifically as a as a form of memory is is an insecurity of any other kind of memory because 
really there's no problem with trusting muscle memory if you also have some kind of harmonic memory or if you know actually at all what you're doing or if you don't mind if you stray away from what you were supposed to be doing into something else then none of these things really let's let's assume let's assume that you do want to get the piece right let's say you're playing a fugue a mm -hmm. bach fugue and you and you're in playing an exam and you and you can't get it wrong okay so let's let's make it you know so that you know that somebody who's listening is not going to go oh well it's all very well for him he can wander off into another key and do something <laughs> else but so let's say that now you've relied on muscle memory you've trained your body to play and now you feel that you're going to forget so then you think what do you think you think i need to remember this and you start doing whatever it is that you need to do in order to remember mm -hmm. and you know grabbing on onto something and that's absolutely when everything's going to fall apart mm -hmm. you know so so what i do in that moment is I just remind myself that I do not have to remember. So I take the, the frontal lobe out of it. Mm -hmm. I do not have to remember. And as I say that, my fingers keep on going because they are infallible. They know exactly what's going on. It's only when the brain tries to take over. So then you just keep playing your fugue and you just say, I don't need to remember this. I don't need to know what the next note is. And it's terrifying. There's a big audience there and you really don't want to mix up. But if you just keep it, you just keep going. Yeah. I don't need to remember this. I don't need to know what the next note is. I don't need to know what the next part is. I don't need to know what key I'm in. And you let it happen. It's amazing. It keeps going. And, and the more you experience that, the more you trust that. And eventually you can be one of the people in the audience just enjoying the show. You know, you don't have to be there, you know, getting all the coal into the into the fire all the time and you know, sweating away, you can really just enjoy yourself and your audience responds to that because they like, you know, no one wants to see somebody else suffer for an hour and a half. I'm listening and nodding and smiling <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and feeling so inspired, actually, and so sort of excited by the idea. And then when I return to my own idea of what I'm doing, um, I think, where do you even start? Like after having had so many years of self-correction, as a form of redemption, I guess, in a way with mm. playing concerts, like where, where do you even start to let go? Like when you said that and you said, you know, imagine that you sit on this stage and you, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to. And then at the end you said, it's amazing in my, <laughs> my mind, like all of the alarm bells are ringing because I just, I imagine that situation is something that, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it seems terrifying for me. I would love for it to sound liberating, but it sounds terrifying. So where do you start? Do I have to go to India? Is that? No, no, it didn't help. No, none of that helped, unfortunately. And I was a bit of a mess. I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I, no, it, I got I had no fear when I was, you mm -hmm. know, 17. I could I, I played a concert to a thousand people in some mm -hmm. school function and I was absolutely without fear. And then I arrived at university and I suddenly had an idea. And the idea was these people know more than me. And as soon as I had that idea, I was destroyed. It was over because I couldn't trust myself anymore. And so I progressively shut down more and more. And, you know, the guitar would feel different when I started to play. You know, the, the chair would feel different, everything. And I would shake and my hands would shake. And it was just really horrendous and horrible. And, you know, I did certain things to to change that um, a kind of a very long uh, path to change that, but it doesn't have to be a long path. It's just that I didn't know what I was doing or how, or how to change that. I, you know, I think the first step is to realize that, you know, a thought is an action. A thought is something mm -hmm. that you do. 
you know, whereas we equate thought with truth, mm-hmm. you know. So if we go back to that um, remembering the Bach fugue example, um, I need to remember this. The person who's playing the concert would say, well, that's true, I do, you know. But I'm not interested in whether a thought is true or not. I mean, we can get very philosophical about that, but, you know, a thought is just a thought. It's something that you're doing. What's interesting about a thought for someone who's involved in a physical discipline is what does it do to my body? Is this thought helpful Mm -hmm. or not? So I think of thoughts as closing or opening. So sit yourself on stage in your mind, start playing your piece and think whatever you're thinking. Like maybe you go back to a concert that you've played before, which didn't work out very well. Uh, or whatever it is, and you work out one of the thoughts, you have to go one thought at a time in the beginning. Uh, you find the thought that you were playing, which, which you were thinking. Maybe it was, you know, I need to get this piece right. I need to play in time. I need to project. Whatever it is. Isolate that thought. Think it. And just ask yourself, is this thought opening? Or is it closing? And you can actually tell very quickly is this thought something that makes you close you know do you feel a narrowing a shortening you know or does it feel expansive and opening and then if it feels closing the mind moves first and then the body follows so if you're going inwards and you're closing your eyes you're not looking peripherally anymore you're not looking at the room and you go in your body follows your shoulders follow, the muscles follow, you go internal. That's the closing thought. So it's very simple. If a thought is closing, to find the opening thought, you just think the opposite. You negate that thought. So whatever that thought was, I need to remember this, becomes I don't need to remember this. And evaluate that thought. Is this an opening thought? Ah, yes, it is. Keep thinking it. I don't need to remember this. And you keep going. So you tap into that opening and closing as your main as your main point of reference, which takes a while because we're very attached to truth. We're very attached to the idea that this is true, but I do have to work hard otherwise, you know. I've got to practice for this concert otherwise. But there's a big difference. Like there's another activity, and that's where we're interested, is the spontaneous emergence. So if you think about practicing, you've got an exam on Thursday, it's Monday. I need to practice because I've got an exam. Of course you do. But now that thought is an action. Is that action opening or closing? If it's closing, you're going to have a horrible four days practicing, forcing yourself, disciplining yourself, and you're going to feel virtuous at the end of it. Oh, I practiced so hard. Oh, it was so wonderful. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could spend four days in freedom and enjoyment and then take that freedom and enjoyment to your exam? So it's, it's the very same thing. So when you realize, ah, the thought I have to practice for this exam is a closing thought, change it. I don't have to practice for this exam. And that's how you move through the rest of the week. I don't need to practice for this exam. You will find that because you're giving yourself permission not to practice, you actually mm-hmm. do play. You want to play, you know, and you don't need discipline. Discipline is highly overrated. I worry that perhaps I'll be kind of double bluffing myself if I try and do that. <laughs> I'll be thinking, I don't need to practice, but I'll, I'm only saying that so that then I practice more. <laughs> I know, absolutely. But the thing is, you can only think one thing at a time. And in the moment that you're thinking that your body believes, your body believes everything you think. Your body's not involved in the bigger picture. It believes you 100%. 
you know. Mm. So in that moment, it believes you and it also likes to be open. So if you give it a taste of that openness, it goes, oh, I like this. Thank you very much. I'll have mm -hmm. more, you know, as well. So it's on your side. It actually wants to. And I'm talking about it as a separate thing. <laughs> of course, it isn't. <laughs> you know, it wants to be free. <laughs> it wants to. So so, you know, as soon as you ex as soon as you experience the difference of that neurotic thought versus the that open thought, um, there's a moment of epiphany, you know, you know, and you go, ah, oh, oh, of course. Oh, my gosh, that's so that's that's so nice. You know, and you just keep you just keep doing that. So it, it's it's not about playing with yourself or convincing yourself of anything. It's about the same thing as making a fist. It's just an action. You know, it's something that you do putting the words I don't need to practice for this exam into your into your mind is exactly the same as making a fist, mm -hmm. you know, got nothing to do with true or false. It's just something that you do, like walking down the road. Is walking down the road true or false? No, it's just walking down the road. Well, yes. <laughs> do you think that you have a different relationship with truth and not truth and with uh, freedom and not freedom having grown up in the apartheid? I kind of came of age, you know, with the new South Africa. So the 1990s were the beginning of my studies mm -hmm. and playing and all that. And it was a very positive time, you know, in, in South Africa. Um, and, you know, the 80s, I was a small boy. And so, you know, I was much more unaware. Uh, just in terms of the guitar, you know, the isolation, I... Uh, I didn't I didn't enjoy and I, I, I really railed against it a, a, a lot and I, I felt like I was mm -hmm. missing out and I would go to you know guitar festivals and I'd get my 10 days of you know great lessons and inspiration and all that and then I'd go back and I wouldn't see anything for ages but I realized in retrospect that it was actually a wonderful a wonderful thing because it gave me it gave me a place to experiment and to do things without getting mm -hmm. constant feedback, you know, um, just to, if you look at like the, you know, learning the chorus music. Um, if I'd been in New York City and I wanted to learn the chorus music, I would have gone and found a chorus player, bought a chorus, taken chorus lessons, and it all would have gone nowhere, you know, because then I would have been like, you know, an amateur chorus player. But the fact that I had no access to a chorus, couldn't find a chorus player, didn't think of getting on a plane and going to Mali, all these were wonderful because it meant I could experiment with the music, learn to play it in my own way, really go deep into the process before anybody came along and said, oh, that's wrong, that's right. You know? so, so I did have this kind of playground where I could really explore. And I, and I, I thank you know, my, you know, Cape Town for that now, <laughs> you know? especially you know, when I see how neurotic my, my European friends can be <laughs> and American friends because yeah. there's so much going on, you know. And there's so much. And if you just want to try some little idea, there'll be 50 people around you that are already doing that idea in a certain way. And so you're going to go, oh, OK, I can't do that. Whereas I could just be completely naive, which was wonderful. I could think I was the only person improvising on the guitar for long enough for me to get good enough to improvise that I felt I could do it. Then I realized, <laughs> oh, my gosh, there's all these other people. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, we, we are in our realities and, and all that. I mean, I think, you know, since we've been talking about epiphanies, uh, an epiphany for me was the realization that I'm not South African as a defining mm -hmm. feature of myself, you know. Um, and I suppose it was Krishnamurti who talked a lot about that, you know, mm -hmm. that we are not 
you know, this nationalism has causes such division and such misery, you know, and look at it now, you know, it's, you know, everybody in their own camp. And there were some years, the beginning of the 2000s, where I was exploring with Alex van Heerden and was recording my first albums. And we were using as our starting point the music of the Western Cape. And I started to get the idea that that was my value. That's what I had to give the world, was the fact that I was located in this place. I had access to this type of music, and that made me different. And that was a limiting thought, you know. As soon as you think that, you know, there's something that you're doing that is important, and if, it, if you weren't doing that, then you wouldn't be you, there's a problem, you know. And so I limited myself a lot. There was, the first one was, um, I'm a composer. I have to play only my own music. That was very limiting. And I am South African. I have to play South African music. That was very limiting. And I was challenged on that where someone pointed out that that wasn't the case. And I had to come to terms with that and realize that, uh, that it was true. And it's true for everybody, of course, you know, and especially, you know, in this, in this global, you know, reality, there's so much coming at us in music. Why would you limit yourself to saying, you know, I'm a West African chorus player. That's all I do. Why would you do that? You know, we, we, we're taking in what's happening and we're, and we're, we're bringing it out in a new way. And the first moment of, of that realization was realizing I didn't have to only play my own music. And that's when I started interpreting Gismonti's music, um, who'd been a huge inspiration to me. And that was a wonderful moment of collaboration, you know, where I realized that this incredible musician, I could collaborate with him and create something through his music and through my music, because interpretation is really the act of collaboration without <laughs> the person being in the room. Yeah, and it's a wonderful... It's a wonderful thing, you know. We're all collaborating with Bach. How great, you know. Um, as long as we're collaborating, as long as we haven't set him up as an authority, which is usually the mm -hmm. case. So that collaboration with Gismonti was hugely rich for me. And that album, it was called The Sound of Water. And half of the music did end up being my own compositions and half of it was his. And, and I loved making that record and it, it made me so happy. And then six months later, I made the Tumani record, The One, one Night on Earth. And that was wonderful for me as a musician. And I learned so much, you know, and my playing just shot to a new level of what I could do technically, because suddenly I had these whole new challenges that weren't coming out of South Africa, that weren't coming out of my own mm -hmm. compositions, my idea of the guitar. Um, suddenly the whole thing enlarged. So, you know, I had 10 years now of mostly focusing on those interpretations of Bach and Tumani and Gismonti and Balake Sissoko and and all that and not writing very much of my own music at all and i've and i suppose the last year or two maybe more i've been going mm -hmm. back to myself and i've got a whole new palette of, of of things now you know and i i just made a record of only my own music again for the first time in 10 years this week i'm i mean i'm in basel in switzerland and i've been spending every second day with a, a, a very old dear friend Ude mazumdar who's a incredible tabla player who lived for 10 years with Ravi Shankar and is an incredible virtuoso and we we did some concert tours together over 10 years ago um, and I've been sitting with him and exploring that beautiful rhythmic system again and the first three or four days I was just so inspired and so excited and I was on the brink of an epiphany and I was realizing that 
I could now collate everything that I'd done before into this huge improvisational language of rhythm. And it was just like, oh my gosh, I was going to be able to improvise an hour long concert. And, you know, and then day five, day six, it, reality hit. And I had to go and play a concert in Frankfurt. And I just, I didn't have those things at my disposal. So I had to play what I did know and it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, and I sort of crashed and I realized like, oh, I can't do all those things. And I had all those grandiose ideas about what I was going to do, but I actually can't do it, you know. And I had to crawl my way out of this. Uh, and I just took the simplest thing. There was a rhythm that he taught me. It's three, two, three, two, three, three. And I just took that idea, that, I- that, that idea and I made something very simple with it. Because obviously before I was trying to, I don't know, I don't know what my guitar is tuned in. took that, that, that rhythm one two one two three one two one two three well it wasn't this because the tuning is different but anyway it said it was this ah oh, that's why and I just made this little rhythm from you know it had come from this fun with it you know and in a very simple way and the last three or four days I've been composing with this really kindergarten version of what I'm learning from him and I've just sort of gone back to where I can start you know having this grandiose idea I need to learn the whole of the Indian rhythmic system so that I can improvise at the level of a tabla player who spent 40 years practicing 60 hours a day that was a horrible thought and it shut me down Of course. So, but then I could let it in, you know, when I, when I went back to me, what I could do, and then I could let that little idea in. And, I, and I've, been, I've been just writing things nonstop now. And it's been so great. And then not at the level of grandiosity of what my, you know, little ego thought it was going to be doing by next Sunday. Uh, but it's, it's fun and creative and, and I'm enjoying myself. You know.